came out with sets of numbers and I plotted them on pieces of paper. Radio waves, radio waves, she sees radio waves, radio waves. Astrophys brings the news, arrays and dishes give different views, are you confused? Radio waves, radio waves, radio waves, she sees radio waves, she sees radio waves. Welcome to the Astrophys Podcasts. My name is Brendan O'Brien and today is Thursday the 5th of December 2019. And we're going to start each episode with a community service announcement and a reminder that, yes, Virginia, we have a climate crisis on our hands. See what you can do to help to convince your local politicians that we need wide-ranging policy changes. And we need them urgently. Each fortnight, we speak with a special guest in the fields of radio astronomy, optical astronomy, space science, or particle physics. And today's feature interview is fabulous, and we're very pleased to be speaking with Dr. Geraint Lewis, who is Professor of Astrophysics at the University of Sydney, and he's going to help us look at that eternal question, are we alone? And then we'll welcome Dr. Ian Astroblog Musgrave for our regular observational and astrophotography session, What's up, Doc? And we'll finish up as usual with our Astrophys News highlights from this golden age of astronomy, space science and particle physics. Also, I'd like to remind listeners that this is our last episode for 2019 before we take our holiday break. But we'll be back in early February 2020. And if you're not already, there's another great astronomy podcast that you should listen to. And that is The Scientists, with our friends Dr. Ancal Lopez Sanchez, a Spanish Australian astrophysicist, working at the Australian Astronomical Optics and in the Department of Physics and Astronomy of the Macquarie University in Sydney. And his co host is the wonderful Indigenous astrophysicist Kirsten Banks, who has just completed her honours year and embarking on her PhD. Listen in, you'll love their work. And don't forget to check out a very cool space website, spaceaustralia.com. So, let's zoom up to Sydney now to speak with Professor Lewis. Hello, Geraint. Hello. Today, I'm very pleased to welcome Dr. Geraint Lewis, who is Professor of Astrophysics at the University of Sydney and whose research includes cosmology and galactic archaeology. He has decades of experience in theoretical and observational astrophysics and is also a data scientist and the deputy director of the Sydney Informatics Hub. And today, he's going to help us look at the existential question, are we alone? Thanks for speaking with us, Geraint. Thank you for inviting me. It's a pleasure. Now, before we look at the question, 
Are We Alone? Can you tell us where you grew up, please, Geraint? Okay, so I'm originally British. I was born in Old South Wales, the original. I now live in New South Wales. And so I grew up in the southern area of Wales, which is the old coal fields. There's not many coal mines left anymore. Very beautiful part of the world. I didn't appreciate when I was growing up. Lots of castles hidden away in the hills. So very nice place. Sounds terrific. So please tell us a little bit about your school days and your early ambitions. And did those ambitions change? Oh, a long time ago. I'm not one of those that had a drive from a very young age to be an astronomer. I mean, I grew up in South Wales, so you barely could see a clear sky anyway. I always had a bit of an interest in science, but I never really knew that you could make a career out of science. So for me, I, look, I, I wasn't a particularly outstanding school child. I, di- I did okay. I went through the, the British comprehensive system. And it wasn't until I got to my A-levels, the equivalent of the HSC here in uh, New South Wales, that I suddenly discovered that I could actually do maths and physics. And then it was suggested I go on to university and everything basically rolled from there. So there was never a grand plan of being a scientist. And I, I sort of stumbled into it through my love of physics and mathematics. Very good. Okay. So after your successful school career, your undergrad degree with honours in physics and astronomy at the University of London was followed up with your PhD at Cambridge. You finished your PhD in 1995, so I found getting an electronic version was difficult, but I believe it was about gravitational lensing. Was that fun? Yes, it was. When you're an undergrad student, you get a taster of research in various projects you can do. But when you do your PhD, you're thrown in, you know, feet first into here's a question, nobody knows the answer. And the area I tackled was this area of gravitational lensing whereby massive objects can deflect the path of light rays through the universe and so give us a distorted view. And I was looking at a particular aspect, which is gravitational microlensing. So this is the influence of individual stars in distorting our view of the universe. And it was stressful. It took a lot of work. But yes, it was fun. This thing of finding the answers to questions of realizing at some point you're the only person on the planet that knows that answer until you've told somebody is a pretty cool thing. It is indeed. That's great. So before we get to your recent Are We Alone gigs, can we just do Aliens 101 and bring some listeners up to speed with the science so we won't do Eric von Daniken, rather Let's set the scene with the Fermi Paradox. What is the Fermi Paradox? So the Fermi Paradox is, it's a really deep idea. The story around this uh, goes back to Enrico Fermi, who was uh, one of the great physicists of the last century, worked in uh, nuclear physics and particle physics. And apparently at lunch one day, uh, him and his colleagues, they were discussing this question of life in the universe. You know, if there's, there's other civilizations out there, if there's other life out there. And what Fermi realized is that if there was other civilizations, even in our own Milky Way galaxy, it should be obvious to us that they exist in that uh, there should be signatures that we should see. So he apparently just said, so where are they? If life is easy and civilizations are easy and our galaxy is full of civilizations, where are the signs that these civilizations are out there? And of course, what we see when we look out into the night sky, you know, we don't see the equivalent of galactic Coca-Cola signs written in the stars. If they're out there, 
why is it we don't see them? So this is the paradox. If we think that life is out there, why don't we see these signatures? Let's keep going on that topic and talk about Frank Drake's famous 1961 equation, the Drake equation. What is it and has it been refined since 61? So Frank Drake is one of those people that has been involved in the SETI project, Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence, essentially since its inception. And of course, if you're going to run a program whereby you want to search for extraterrestrial intelligence, you need to have a way to make an assessment on how many intelligent species are out there that you think you could receive communications from. So the Drake equation is, is essentially a way of putting together the factors that um, will tell us eventually how many civilizations are out there. So you, you have to take various things and multiply them together. So the first thing is like the rate at which stars are created in the Milky Way galaxy. And after that, you've got the question of how many of those stars will have planets. And then you have to multiply in a factor whereby how many of those planets will get to the conditions where you will have life, how many will uh, eventually get life, how that life will evolve into intelligent species, how intelligent species will eventually develop into a species that communicate amongst the stars. And then you have to multiply by sort of like the length of time that a civilization can occur. So you can look it up on Wikipedia. There's a whole string of nine or 10 factors that you have to multiply together. And this will give you an estimate of how many civilizations are there in the Milky Way right now that could potentially be sending out signals that we can detect. Um, so there's been a lot of argument about the Drake equation in the sense that you start off by putting in numbers that you understand very well. So we do understand quite well how many stars are made in the Milky Way each year. We know that's roughly one to two solar masses of stars are created every single year. So we can calibrate that. Due to the work of telescopes like Kepler, we are getting an idea of how many stars harbor planets. And of course, Kepler famously has now found thousands of extrasolar planets. And if you sort of multiply in the numbers, it looks like most stars will have planets. Yep. But then you start to get into factors that we've got less of a handle on. The question of, you know, how many of those planets have the conditions for life? So then, well, you know, exactly what do we mean by the conditions of life? And then how many of those planets with the conditions of life go on to get life on the planet? Again, another factor we don't really understand. And then you keep going down the chain and down the chain all the way to how long does the civilization last? And of course, you go for, at the start from numbers we can measure to numbers at the end, which are effectively guesswork. And so this means that the Drake equation doesn't have a single answer. It has a different answer for depending who's putting in the numbers that they're multiplying together. Yep. So at one extreme, you get the optimists and they will put in their numbers and their optimistic numbers and they will say, that the number of civilizations in the galaxy might be ooh, 10 million. But then you can take the pessimists and you, they put in their numbers and instead of there being 10 million, a number like 10 to the minus 10, which would mean that sort of advanced civilizations that can communicate occur very, very rarely in a galaxy like the Milky Way. Yep. Okay, Geraint. Now, you just mentioned the SETI project. Can you introduce us to Seth Shostak and the SETI Institute? And what strategies has the SETI project used to detect aliens? 
And I note that the Parkes Radio Telescope has been contracted with some serious money to participate in a SETI project as we speak. Yes, so so SETI, as I said, has been running oh, for must be about 50 years now, if not a little bit longer. And the, the goal is relatively straightforward, right? I mean, the, the idea is, is that if you've got civilizations out there, they might not even be civilizations that can travel between the stars, but they will be civilizations um, that maybe have gone through a similar kind of technological development as life on Earth. And one thing that we know, of course, is that we hit the Industrial Revolution and we get to the 1800s, discovery of radio waves. And before we know it, in the 1920s and then especially in the 1930s, we are transmitting radio signals around the planet, transmitting radio signals for television, for communication. But some of that stuff sort of leaks into space, right? Some of those radio waves go off into space. So maybe if we take our telescopes, our radio telescopes, assuming that radio is the easiest way to send these kind of signals, and we just look around the sky, maybe we can eavesdrop on this leaking communications from, from these other civilizations. So the SETI project has effectively been set up to take bunches of stars. And what you do is you look at a star and you look at its signal in the radio and you look for something which doesn't look natural. So we know that, of course, that there are many things that produce radio signals. Most of the time, those radio signals are randomish noise, a little bit of slowly moving signatures, etc. But if we saw something that was definitely, you know, very regularly paced or pulsed or looked like it was containing information, that would be an indication that we have dropped in on a, a civilization that's its signals are leaking out into the universe. Now, SETI has had interest in history. I mean, it was originally a, a government-funded project, but of course, you know, government funds are, are always rare. And there was an evolution in, I think it was must have been the 1990s, 2000s, when we started getting our, our tech billionaires, where it moved from having essentially that public money into private, it was funded by people like uh, Paul Allen, to basically build their own dedicated radio telescope arrays such that they could search for these signals. And so the Allen array is something that, that SETI has, which is now going around looking at all these different stars. But then they also have the opportunity to buy in to bigger radio telescopes like Parks and uh, run their project there to essentially, again, point the radio telescope and ask, are we just picking up background noise or is there a signal hidden in there as well? And of course, what we have is that there is an immense amount of data that floods in from these radio telescopes. And it's a massive data processing project to, to sit there and sift through all this data and try and dig out any kind of regular signals. Even if we find something, of course, we have to be very careful. We, we all know the story of the discovery of pulsars where, you know, Jocelyn Bell Burnell was looking at the particular star and discovered its radio waves were, were basically beeping at a very regular interval. And we discovered that actually that is just a natural signal. That's a spinning neutron star. And so even if we find a signal, we have to be very careful that we're not being fooled by nature rather than it being a, a civilization. I love that story where Jocelyn wrote LGM1 on her chart recorder paper for Little Green Men. Yes, yes, yes. Little green men. Yeah, you have to, I mean, 
it's it's a Sherlock Holmes thing, right? You really, really, really have to get rid of all of the possibles before you consider the whatever's left as being the only solution. And in fact, the story around neutron stars and pulsars were that on the theoretical side, people had already spoken about neutron stars and what they could be. So once the pulses were discovered, the link to the theoretical ideas that already existed was very quick. So there was already a possible physical explanation before we had to say, oh, is it aliens? Excellent. Science is just lovely. And an aside here that I might edit out is I remember there were a couple of years back there where I was part of the citizen science project where you donate your background CPU cycles to the SETI at home project where they took your computer cycles to analyze packages of data. Absolutely. Um, and those projects are still running. Of course, uh, what, what has happened is that those projects have exploded, right? There are a whole range of those different projects you can get involved with. If I remember rightly, there's an entire citizen science around galaxy classifications, which you can actually do by eye. But this thing of using your spare CPU cycles, I think there was a protein folding project. There's, there's a whole sway. I think even particle physics has gotten in on the act where you could get your computer to reduce some particle physics data as well. Yeah, it's a fantastic field that's really exploding right now. So let's finish up our 101 section with a current project. And you mentioned independent entrepreneurs. And now we've got Breakthrough Starshot. What is it? And do you think it's viable? So Breakthrough Starshot, well, let's just remember where we are, right? It's 2019. We have tech billionaires with far more money than uh, they know what to do with. And so if you look at all of the interesting and exciting stuff, it's being backed by a lot of these people that have made their money in tech. And Breakthrough Starshot comes from Yuri Milner. And his idea, well, he's got his money and he wants to do something interesting with it. And one of the interesting things that Breakthrough Starshot wants to do is all part of this search for uh, habitable planets and life in the universe. And one of the cool things they want to do is essentially send a micro probe to Alpha Centauri. So this would be a, a very, very small probe, effectively very limited number of instruments on a, essentially a reflective sheet. And you basically zip it off towards Alpha Centauri. You basically try and get it up to speed by using laser beams. And it will still take a long time to get there. When it gets there, it'll be able to take a few pictures of the Alpha Centauri system and send them back. So we can just get our first glimpse of what another planetary system really looks like from close up. Now, the question of if it's viable is an interesting one. It's not impossible. There's a very large chance that it would fail. But these people are the only ones that are trying something at the moment. I mean, governments seem to have lost interest in, in these big, grand-scale projects. I mean, I'm old enough to see, oh, we're going back to the moon, we're going back to Mars, trotted out every few years and nothing ever really happening. Even if Breakthrough Starshot never sends anything to the stars, it has inspired people to think about it. And what we can only hope is, what can come from this, is people will again see the value of trying to do some of this science because some of the spin-offs that will come from this kind of project will be beneficial in the long run. So I, I support it. I'm not sure if it's going to work. If it does, it's going to be fantastic. But I can only see upsides from the project existing. Exactly. The spin-offs alone will make it worth it. Now, let's get on to the material you're currently using in your current presentation, Are We Alone? Can you give us a 
slightly condensed version of your most recent presentation on this question? So I should probably mention how I got to this question because I'm a, I'm a cosmologist by training. I study the large scale structure of the universe. But one thing I've been getting interested in in the last half a decade or so is this question of fine tuning of the physical laws of the universe that allow us to be here. So it seems like our universe has just the right kind of physical laws for complexity and life to exist. And I've been looking at this question of our universe's place in the multiverse, etc. And what I realized is in working all of this is I didn't really understand the notions of habitability in our own universe and the question of should life be common? Should life be rare? What factors actually influence life in our universe as we understand it? So this talk grew out of the, the work I've looked at with regards to how habitable should our universe be. Very good. Okay, let's condense that even further. From your view, what is the very short answer to the quintessential question, are we alone? Well, the short answer is, I think, is that we are alone. I mean, if we take a look at the evidence around us, that we are alone, at least in the Milky Way galaxy, if not in, you know, the observable universe. So it's not the answer a lot of people want to hear. Everybody loves aliens. But going by what science tells us, it looks like we're alone. Now, can we talk a little bit about your amazing research schedule? You've been publishing a prolific number of papers in top journals on a fascinating variety of studies for many, many years now. And this year alone, you have papers on galactic cannibalism, dark energy, dark matter annihilation, Andromeda's dwarf galaxies, quasar microlensing, just to name a very few. Let's just focus on one of your research projects, if that's possible. Currently, what's the most puzzling, challenging, the most enjoyable research that you're currently involved in? Oh, that's such a such a big question. Um, let me let me just think about this a little bit. So, I should mention that. I did have a very interesting result quite recently that was published in the journal Nature, and that was to do with our nearest cosmic neighbor, the Andromeda Galaxy. And this is an object that I've been studying now for about the last 20 years or so. And what we've been looking at is the motion of objects in the halo of Andromeda. So everybody has seen a poster of the Andromeda Galaxy. It's a very picturesque galaxy, very beautiful. But what we're interested in is not the, the main galaxy itself, but the outskirts of the galaxy out to very large distances. And we've been looking at the motions of dwarf galaxies, these small galaxies, and also globular clusters in the halo of Andromeda. And what we've seen is about five years ago, we found that the dwarf galaxies were on some sort of very coordinated motion. So we would sort of expect dwarf galaxies to be buzzing around a little bit like random flies. But what we're actually seeing is that they are moving coherently and rotating together in an overall plane, which is very unexpected from our theoretical ideas. Now, our most recent results was looking at not the dwarf galaxies, but globular clusters. So these are these small tight balls of around a million stars each. And Andromeda's got a lot of these globular clusters. In the outer regions, there's roughly 100 or so. 
And what we have been able to do is measure their positions on the sky very accurately and measure their speeds. And what we've seen is that we can break the population of globular clusters down into two groups. One which was accreted relatively recently, and we know that because we see the globular clusters are associated with stars. So what we say is, is that something fell in or things fell in about three billion years ago. So dwarf galaxies fell in carrying these globular clusters. They get torn apart. Some of the stars get left and the, the globular clusters still sit with some of those stars. There's also a more ancient accretion of roughly six, seven, eight billion years ago. So again, something fell in in that time period, again, carrying these globular clusters but they've orbited so many times that all the stars they were associated with inside the dwarf galaxy have dispersed, leaving only the globular clusters. And what we find is that these two populations, which are roughly equal in size, are rotating around the Andromeda galaxy, but they are rotating at 90 degrees to one another. So, you know, one is rotating top to bottom, the other is rotating from side to side. And this is quite unexpected. Because, again, if you look at our overall pictures of how you expect big galaxies to grow over time, what you get is that you expect things to effectively rain in, essentially a constant kind of rain from a lots of different directions. So you expect things sort of be mixed up and mushed up. But seeing these coherent motions tell you that there was a, a bout of accretion, a bout of feeding on smaller objects around 7 billion years ago, and another bout around 2 to 3 billion years ago. And they came from quite different directions. So what we're trying to do now is understand exactly how that fits into our picture of galaxy evolution. Should we expect to see these episodes of binge eating, where we expected more galaxies to be, be grazing over long periods of time? Wow, that points at that famous comic where scientists don't say eureka, they say, wow, that's interesting. Actually, I saw a new version of that this week, which is kind of true, is that it's normally met with a swear word. You, just look, you look at your data and you just say to yourself, I, I have no idea what this is telling me. And that's always the start of something exciting. <laughs> okay. Now, I understand, you know, you're talking about that research that's been published. I understand a lot of researchers are sort of embargoed when it's en route to a journal. Are there any upcoming results that you are excited about that you can mention here? Absolutely. Yes, we have. I'm part of a, a big survey in Australia called S5, which stands for the Southern Stream Spectroscopic Stellar Survey. I think that's the right S's. What we're doing is that over the last few years, we've had some big telescopes scan the skies, especially the southern skies, and they're finding lots of structure in our own Milky Way halo. So this is, the, again, the region outside of our, our disk. And what we find in there are these long, extended streams of stars. And these streams of stars, they are essentially dwarf galaxies and other objects which have been slowly torn apart. So we started a survey using the Anglo-Australian Telescope at Coonabarabin and an instrument on there called 2DF. Yep. And we've been me measuring the speeds of stars in these streams. So you find all the stars and what we hope to do is measure the orbits and measure the amount of dark matter that we have in our Milky Way galaxy. But we have spare capacities. So 2DF is a multi-fiber instrument, which means you have these fibers that you put on the objects you're interested on, but we also then have spare fibers that we put on other things that look interesting. 
And one of the things that we found is a star moving at extremely high speed. So this object, which is known as S5 HVS1, S5 high velocity star one, is moving at 1700 kilometers per second Whoa. with regards to the galaxy. So this star is essentially heading out of the galaxy at very, very high speed. It looks like it's probably going to be unbound and it's going to exit the galaxy. So the question is, is where did that star come from? How does a star get up to that speed? And there are a number of ways that people have proposed to do this. And you need quite elaborate mechanisms to do it. So, you know, if you've just got a pair of stars orbiting, this, this never happens, right? These two stars would happily orbit each other forever. So you need to bring in a third body that these stars can interact with. Yep. And if we trace the orbit of this high-velocity star back to its origin, it appears to come from the galactic center. And we know that in the galactic center, there is, of course, a very large black hole, yep. which is in the constellation of Sagittarius. So what we are suggesting is that this star was originally in a binary system somewhere near the galactic center. Its orbit took it very close to the black hole in the middle of the galaxy. And then that three-body interaction essentially slung shot this star out towards us. And the other star potentially got lost into the black hole. So this star basically got its speed through an interaction with the black hole in the middle of the galaxy, which itself is, is very, very exciting. Fantastic. Now, Outreach, you're frequently in the media and popular press. You do radio and television and podcasts, and you've published both textbooks on astroparticle physics and a fortunate universe for a wider audience, and you've got a soon-to-be-released The Cosmic Revolutionary Handbook with Luke Barnes. And just a few weeks ago, you were up on stage for the Choose Your Own Apocalypse event in a doomsday battle with other astro-luminaries. Why do you personally do such a great range of outreach and why is outreach important? Um, very good question. Uh, you know, sometimes I ask myself why I do so. It's, look, it, it, it's fun. It, it, at the end of the day, it is something I enjoy doing. Uh, I personally get a lot of pleasure in actually doing astronomical research and understanding stuff about the universe is the thing that makes me tick and being able to talk to people about that and to communicate that for myself is is very satisfying so i like to think that i know more than my little narrow silo of astronomical research i i feel like i know a lot of physics and so i can bring the wonder of not only my area of research but the broader area of physics and science to people and I, I actually think that it's it's very, very important that people see the kind of things that we do as scientists. As I mentioned at the start, I, I grew up in, in South Wales and, you know, the only scientist I ever saw was Doctor Who, right? There were no other scientists in my life. <laughs> uh, you know, they, they, I come from an industrial area. I had no idea that I could be a scientist or who even became a scientist. So I think, it's, I think it's very important, especially for the next generation, to see that anybody with a passion for science can work in science and can have a career in science. 
So, so that's all part of the outreach. And of course, there's also this very strong thing that we are ultimately funded by the taxpayer and the taxpayer should, should know what it is that we do and what the return on their dollar is. And of course, I, I don't, I'm not building the next widget. I'm not going to make your iPhone any faster. But I think that I think people are curious about big questions about us, our place in the universe, the birth of the universe, evolution of the universe, where things are going to go. People have those big questions. So the only way that they're ever going to really know what the cutting edge is, is if scientists actually talk about their work. So, yeah, I think it's actually vitally important. And, and it's good to see that there is. I feel that there's more now than there was a decade ago when it comes to outreach. I wish that the popular media, uh, in terms of like the television networks, etc., would pick up on it, but it does seem to go in the right direction. Very good. Thank you. Right now, the mic is all yours. Oh, and before we do, I should mention, uh, you mentioned Doctor Who. The great thing here is that every astronomer has their own TARDIS. Absolutely. I mean, look, I know that by looking through a telescope, I can see back in time, but I wouldn't mind actually going back in time and checking out ancient universe. I think it would be so cool to see. The past universe was a very different place to the universe today. It would be so cool to visit. Oh, yes. And it looks pretty messy. Now, the microphone microphone is all yours and you have the opportunity to give us your favourite rant or rave about one of the challenges that we face in science or science denialism or career paths or our quest for new knowledge. The mic's all yours. Okay, so I have to be very careful because I am known to rant now and again. Last year, I was involved in a discussion panel at the University of Sydney, and it was a very, very well-attended panel, and it was myself, uh, there was a screenwriter, a poet, uh, somebody from the biological sciences, etc., And the question that we were debating was, is storytelling bad for science? And uh, the debate was very good. Of course, everybody felt that storytelling, the stories of people and their lives and relations to science and how science discoveries, etc., was all a very important aspect to portraying science in the public media. I was the curmudgeon there. I was the one that had the slightly negative viewpoint. And my my viewpoint was, is that what often gets lost in the public discussion of science is the act of doing science. And we should not deny the fact that science itself, the doing of science is hard work. It's a lot of thinking and grunt and reading and running up against brick walls and frustration. The result at the end, when you find something new is fantastic, but getting to that point can be very, very hard work. And it's all part of the scientific process. And the reason that I, I was ranting slightly along this path is that a lot of, you know, I work in a, in a big university. We have very, very smart kids coming in all the time, all very interested in science. They have built up their picture of science. Their internal picture of science comes from their exposure to the media rather than seeing a scientist in action. So they have a particular viewpoint of how science works. And then they get down into the nitty gritty and they've realized that it's actually 
hard work to actually get the science done. And of course, they come around to this and they become scientists in their own right. But it would be good if in the media somewhere that, you know, the, the, the actual frustration that you can actually have as a scientist when you, when you just cannot get through an intellectual barrier, you cannot get an experiment to work, you cannot find that object through your telescope and realize that it, it's, it can be a tough job at times. So that, that's my rant. And I'm not asking for sympathy. I'm, I'm definitely not asking for sympathy. I would rather be a scientist than being a coal miner like my father. But it would be good if there was an appreciation that science can be hard work job at times. Yeah, and some respect. Thank you so much. Is there anything else that we should watch out for in the near future? What are you keeping your eye on? Oh, there's, there's so much happening at the moment. So there's, the next generation of telescopes are coming together. And, you know, we've got things like the, the big telescopes being built by the Europeans and the Americans. Things are happening. So we're, we're heading towards this situation of we will have these new eyes on the sky. Now, it's not plain sailing. Some of your listeners will probably have heard about the, the issues going on in Hawaii with regards to the use of Mauna Kea and the local people that see it as a sacred mountain. And so there's been some protests there, which are effectively impacting the d development of the, the telescopes going into Hawaii. But in terms of technology, the next 10 years are going to be very, very exciting with what's coming online. We are facing those issues in both particle physics and cosmology, whereby our, our theories work exceedingly well. And we are now desperate to find out where they do not work. And what I mean by that is that we know that our theories of particle physics can't be complete because dark matter is not in there, dark matter energy is not in there. We know that they're big parts of the universe. And similarly, our picture of cosmology cannot be complete because we know that it doesn't link properly into quantum mechanics, etc. So what everyone is hoping for is that the next generation of telescope, the next generation of gravitational wave detection, and even what happens with particle physics, because the particle physicists don't know yet what the next project's going to be, will give us clues to where our theories are properly broken. At the moment, we're all jumping at shadows. Anytime we sort of see a result that looks slightly out of whack, we get very excited. And as you might know, in cosmology at the moment, there's this thing called Hubble tension, oh, yeah. whereby yeah, a couple of groups of people have been measuring Hubble's constant against slightly different numbers. Now, the, the numbers are discrepant at a reasonably sort of significant amount, but nothing to get overly excited about. So people are just saying, oh, is this new physics? That's the phrase. Is this new physics? Or it could be something to do with the calibration of our, our projects. We said we are desperate for our, our new eyes on the skies to, to basically tell us, look, this is the direction you should be looking in. And I, I'm hoping that the next decade will do that. And a very interesting decade indeed. I might at this stage just preempt that I think we're going to have to have you back on the show sometime later next year. I noticed that you're the Deputy Director of the Sydney Informatics Hub and with all of these new instruments, these huge telescopes coming online, that means an unbelievable amount of data will need to be investigated and that's going to be a problem for retention of data, for storage of data, for AI analysis, 
And I think we could have a fantastic conversation about that next year. Uh, absolutely. So this is one of the things that people, I think, do not quite appreciate yet at the moment. We know that we have these square kilometre array coming to Western Australia and it's in South Africa. They are facing the problem that particle physicists have been facing for the last 30 years is that your instruments take so much data so fast that essentially you need to have a supercomputer at your instrument to decide which data to keep and which to throw away as the data is being taken. And even with that data deluge, we are still facing huge computational issues about sifting through that data. So yeah, we, we are on the cusp of it, but it's, it's a problem that's not going away soon. Thank you very much. Well, thank you so much, Professor Lewis. On behalf of our listeners, it's been truly fabulous speaking with you. Thank you very much. Bye now. Bye. Okay, let's zoom over to Adelaide in Australia now to speak with Ian Astro-Blogmusgrove. Hello, Ian. Hello, Brendan. How are you going? Very good, thank you. Great to be speaking with you again. And you've just come back from a conference in New Zealand. I have indeed. I flew back on Friday and got in about 11.30 at night. Ended up going to bed at 12.30 and the next morning I was up at 6 to go to run another conference here in Adelaide. Fantastic. Well, we'll get this done so that you can get a bit of a relax happening. Can you tell us, Ian, what's up in the sky for the next two months? the next two months, we've got our trio of Jupiter, Venus and Saturn in the evening sky, although uh, Jupiter will be leaving us by the end of December. But if you've been following our trio over the past few nights, you'll be noticing the very close position of Venus and Jupiter, which was very spectacular. And then over the next few nights, We've had uh, the crescent moon close to Jupiter and Saturn. Sadly, that's not going to happen again during this watch. But what we will see, Saturn and Venus come close together. This won't be quite as spectacular as the Jupiter-Venus event, because Saturn much newer. But if you go out in the evening, uh, you'll still be able to see the, a line formed by Jupiter, a low on the horizon, Venus and Saturn, if you're looking at an hour after sunset. Very good. And over toward the uh, western horizon, there will be the moon. That will be very nice to watch. But if you keep on watching, you'll see the Venus climb higher and higher above the horizon. You've got a pair of binoculars. It's well worth scanning. Uh, Venus will, will come close to a number of interesting objects. It may be difficult to see because the brightness of Venus will actually drown out some of the fainter clusters, but it's well worth watching it through binoculars and pass it through Sagittarius. As we speak, and when this recording will come out, Venus will be starting off close to the star that forms the really seapot of Sagittarius, and then it will draw away heading towards Saturn. Saturn and Venus are at their closest on the 10th and 11th, which will be a very nice thing to watch. Then Saturn will head towards the horizon as well, and will be very by the end of the month, it will be very low on the horizon and difficult to see. And towards the end of the month, we'll see the thin crescent moon climb up to Saturn and Venus again. 
So on the 27th, we'll see Batman and Thin Crescent Moon lower back the horizon about an hour after sunset. And then on the moon, will climb higher. And on the 29th, Venus and the Crescent Moon will be close together, uh, looking rather beautiful in the evening twilight. Mars is now becoming very easy to see in the early morning if you're getting up early. During most of November, it was quite hard to see half an hour before sunset, but uh, during December, it will be relatively easy to see about an hour after sunset. Mercury was very close, uh, was, was close below Mars for a while. Now it's falling back into the twilight and will reappear in the evening in the evening twilight in January. So on the 23rd, Mars and the thin crescent moon will be a very beautiful sight in the morning, an hour before sunrise. What else is there? We've got the traditional December meteor shower, the Gemini. The Geminis are a very good meteor shower. Unfortunately, this year, the full moon is sitting almost on top of the radiant, so the chances that we'll see any uh, decent uh, meteors here in Australia are very dim. So if you're planning to uh, go out on December the 14th to have a look at the Gemma's, you might be better off just uh, having a sleep in instead. <laughs> Unless you're really dedicated, and the, the problem with the, the moon's radiant, the moon being so close to the rain, not only is the moon incredibly bright, and so it makes it very difficult to see the meteor. Okay, well, we'll cross our fingers for next year, Ian. Do you have a tangent for us for this final episode? For 2019, Ian? I do indeed, and uh, it's, with, it's uh, partly about our Christmas comma. You may uh, all recall Sue High Borisol 2019, yep. which is the, our interstellar comet that caused quite a bit of rockets when it was first found. Maybe the second year, uh, the interstellar objects coming into our solar system. And Boris and uh, Borisol. It's called the Christmas Comet because it comes to its brightest in December and roughly between the, the 11th to the 16th of December is when it's at its brightest. And they are, it'll be good out for the 21st as well. So it, it's a Christmas Comet only in the sense that, it, that it's a unique comet that will be a little bit right around Christmas time and the, the uh, quotation marks around the world will be bright. But for most people, it'll be effectively invisible. So what magnitude, Ian? It'll get up to magnitude 15. I'm just having a look at the most recent reported magnitude, and it's well on its way to uh, reach magnitude 15. Yep. Now, magnitude 15 is, is pretty dim, but if you're around under dark sky conditions with a mid-range or better amateur telescope, uh, you've got a very good chance of seeing it. Very so good. I, I can imagine quite a few uh, amateurs will be celebrating the Christmas season by trying to catch a glimpse of this comet. Sadly for our northern hemisphere listeners, you can't see it. It will be well below your horizon. But for Australian and other southern hemisphere viewers, at the moment the comet is very close to the constellation of Crater the Cup and will pass through Crater then a constellation of the water snake into the constellation of Ops and Taurus. So you're best looking around about 3 to 4 o'clock in the morning for it to be high enough to be observable, and it will be observable up to 90 minutes before sunrise. 
So this is an excellent opportunity to have a look at this interstellar visitor for uh, a wide range of amateurs. And again, if you've got uh, a six to eight inch scope, you won't be able to see it visually. Uh, you'll need a, a bigger scope than that. But for many amateurs in Australia and uh, the southern hemisphere, that's well within their range. Very good, Ian. And for those of us without a decent telescope, we'll just have to wait for it to come around a second time. But that could be a while. <laughs> yeah, I mean, on its current orbit, it's never coming back. The comet thing is turning out to be interesting in that it's uninteresting. It's looking very much like an ordinary Oort cloud comet, puffing off water vapour, cyanide, all of the sorts of uh, rates that we expect to see from an outer Oort comet. Well, and while you may say, okay, this is kind of boring, it's also it's very good because it gives us uh, a good idea of what the environment around around uh, other stars are. Now we know many stars have uh, cometary belts around them. We've picked up the dust and gas that indicate uh, cometary belts around these stars. But the question is, what are, are these uh, like clouds around? The other stars are similar to ours. Uh, is the, the birth nebula of other stars similar or different to ours? It gives us a feeling that the Oort clouds of other stars are too different from the Oort clouds of our solar system, and their comets are very similar to our comet. Well, that's all very interesting, Ian, especially in the context of the interview that we've just done with Professor Geraint Lewis who is arguing that the Earth is fairly unique in our solar system and to hear that comets from interstellar space are very much like our own comets sort of suggests that there's nothing too special about Earth and our solar system and perhaps there is life out there somewhere at some time. It's entirely possible. I mean, there may be reasons why Earth is a bit, a bit different because of our size and location compared to many of the other super-Earths that we've found. But one of the things that we can think about, for example, if a large proportion of the water that arrived on Earth is delivered by comets, and uh, interstellar comets are, uh, and, and the cometary clouds around other stars are similar to our comets, then uh, it's likely that the water, uh, water delivery of the and the amount of water would be similar between a uh, Earth-like planet and ourselves. I mean, there's more to it than that, but we've known for many, many years that there are a range of organics uh, in uh, nebulas and comets that would be uh, very useful for providing uh, the uh, pre-biological uh, materials or the origin of life on Earth. For example, uh, meteors are full of amino acids, uh, there's a bit of, bit of uh, uh, phosphorus, there's a couple of other things, sugars, but uh, this is the first time we found ribose. You need ribose to make RNA, and RNA uh, being a, uh, a, a information storing molecule like uh, DNA, but, uh, and, and we believe that uh, the Earth at least went through some stage when RNA where RNA is not only the uh, the uh, information carrier but also the uh, 
enzymic catalyst. So if the, if the comets uh, from other solar systems are similar to the comets here, maybe the other conditions uh, are right and uh, at least some of the, the organic materials on a terrestrial light like world uh, and the uh, one spark light and I find that very, very fascinating. Very good. And we'll presently say goodbye. And I'll just remind our listeners to log on to Astroblogger. Just do a search on the internet with your favourite search engine for Astroblog. And Ian puts up great star charts and lets you know what to look for and where to find it. And we'll be returning early in 2020. And we've got some great interviews We've got Dr. Belinda Nicholson from the UK coming in. We've got Wale Farrar on his use of AI to capture FRB signals from the Malonglo Synthesis Telescope in real time. To follow up on our Are We Alone theme, we've lined up specialist communication researcher Daniel Oberhaus. And Daniel's the author of a book called Extraterrestrial Languages. And I'm really looking forward to that. And here in Victoria, we're hoping to have Clint Jeffrey on the show to talk about the first light for the Astronomical Society of Victoria's new 8-metre radio telescope up in the quiet zone. And they're hoping that first light occurs in about three weeks. So we'll have some exciting news about that. And so our 100th episode will also be coming early next year, and we're happy to confirm that Dr. Vanessa Moss will be our guest for this special occasion. And we'll see all of our listeners back again in early February 2020. So it's good night from me, Ian. Thanks for a fabulous year of your reports on the night and morning sky and all your special tangents. It's been fantastic. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Brendan, and I'm very much looking forward to our 2020 vision. Excellent. Well, good night, Ian. Good night, mate. Here is the Astrophys News. First up, an update on Starlink. On November 11, SpaceX launched 60 Starlink satellites into low Earth orbit, bringing its total constellation size to 122 already one of the largest satellite networks in space. The company has approval to launch 12,000 of the small broadband satellites, and SpaceX has just asked the International Telecommunication Union to arrange spectrum for 30,000 additional Starlink satellites. This could mean the end for dark skies for observers, amateur and professional optical astronomers, and there is considerable concern that certain radio frequency wavelength bands could become polluted for radio astronomy research worldwide. For those interested in tracking these sky blemishes, you can go to www.satflare.com. Next up, 19 newly discovered dwarf galaxies seem to be missing their dark matter, and astrophysicists aren't sure why. The find dramatically increases the number of galaxies that appear to be missing dark matter, the mysterious invisible stuff that exerts gravitational pull yet emits no light. Dark matter is thought to be a key ingredient in galaxy formation, 
with its gravity pulling together atoms of gas to form galaxies. We can tell dark matter is present in a galaxy because it makes the matter in that galaxy swirl faster than it would if the matter we see made up the galaxy's whole mass. This faster swirling has shown up in every galaxy that could be precisely measured, but recently, however, researchers have found that certain small galaxies, now including 19 dwarf galaxies, behave as if they're dominated by baryons, the particles that make up ordinary matter. The evidence for their unseen halos of dark matter is missing. This, in turn, has the potential to challenge the standard cosmological model for galaxy formation. Watch this space. Finally, China's lunar rover, Yutu-2, has driven 345 metres on the far side of a moon to conduct scientific exploration. Both the lander and the rover of a Shangi-4 have ended their work for the 12th lunar day and switched to dormant mode for the lunar night. Due to the rugged and heavily cratered terrain on the far side of the moon, engineers are carefully planning the routes of the rover to ensure its safety. And also, as part of this mission, the Netherlands-China Low Frequency Radio Telescope at the far side of the moon is now operational. The three five-metre-long monopole antennas which make up the radio telescope have unfolded after a year of orbiting the moon. The receivers are sensitive to radio frequencies in the range between 80 kHz and 80 MHz, and the Chang'e 4 mission was launched in December 2018 and will have its first birthday in two days. Happy birthday to the Chang'e 4 mission. A special thanks now to all the researchers who have given so generously of their time and expertise this year. I hope all of our listeners have a wonderful festive break, and we'll see you again in two months. Radio Wave!